This is The Saucer Life, a podcast in which we examine concepts, events, or people orbiting the world of flying saucers. Few preconceptions, snark when justified, no belief, no debunking, no, hasn't happened yet. We're still waiting for disclosure. In this instance, we're looking at some aspects of the disclosure movement in the 1990s, and we've touched on some of these topics before. We had our episode about the disclosure furor surrounding the election of Barack Obama in 2008. We talked about Dr. Richard Boylan, um, a prominent disclosure advocate. A lot of the material and research that went into this episode was part of my forthcoming book, uh, which has a title that changed at the last minute and that I don't remember offhand, but uh, this isn't a commercial. Believe me, when it's available, you'll have enough commercial content about the book. So, Again, this is about, right now, today, disclosure in the 1990s, the birth of what now is considered or called the disclosure movement. And we're going to be focusing on a character named Dr. Stephen Greer, um, former emergency room physician from North Carolina, an educated man, a well-spoken man, a man who has, like some of the rarefied figures in the heights of ufology, has managed to adjust his approach and change his pitch just enough to remain consistent while remaining relevant no matter what is going on in the world of ufology. There's a reason people like Dr. Stephen Greer stick around for so long. They're able to consistently appeal to a new audience and find ways to you know, make a living talking about UFOs and promising, urging, hinting at, UFO disclosure. So just to sort of emphasize, we are not going to be talking about modern disclosure topics. We're not going to be talking about what Greer's been doing in the last you know, 10, 15 years or so because, well, I need to get another episode out of Greer at some point. So that's what we're doing. Let's get started. So I kind of want to start with a little thumbnail sketch of, of how I sort of define the disclosure movement and how I sort of see it fitting in to the whole history of UFO stuff. So back in the 1950s and onward, you have two strands that kind of develop. One of these, just for shorthand, we'll call the NICAP Air Force CIA conspiracy strand, that there were extraterrestrial craft visiting Earth that thousands of people witnessed just in the United States alone, and the U.S. Air Force and other elements of the military intelligence establishment were covering these things up. So that's that's one strand, and that continues to this day. The other strand is the contactee movement, where you have people talking about the Space Brothers and their intentions and their, for the most part, goodness and blending lots of optimism and sociopolitical consciousness in with their UFO stories. In a lot of ways, the disclosure movement blends these things together 
And one of the leading figures in this movement from the very beginning has been Dr. Stephen Greer, who actually popularized the term disclosure, who calls himself the father of the disclosure movement. Um, I wouldn't do that if I were him, but since the early 90s, he's created and overseen a whole bunch of different initiatives with different names and a sort of surprising and confusing array of websites over the years and things like that. Um, Doing all this, uh, like I said, since the early 90s to spread his vision of ET contact and how to get ET contacts, how to get ETs to contact you. The joke about it in UFO circles is, oh, Dr. Greer's charging people however many thousands of dollars to go out and wave flashlights and call the flying saucers down to earth. But it's been more than that. So these initiatives, the Center for the Study of Extraterrestrial Intelligence, or CSETI, Yes, trying to traffic on that SETI acronym, the much more famous SETI acronym. There's the Disclosure Project, the Orion Project, and Serious Technology Advanced Research. And through all of these, Greer promoted this idea that there needs to be an official government disclosure of the alien presence, but also used the issue to talk about concepts like war and peace and government accountability in broader terms and environmental or ecological responsibility. It's that socially conscious strand that was part of the contactee stuff. So there's the government's covering things up and then, and let's look at these other issues that are affecting humanity. These things sort of are blended together. And one of the things that Greer does is he sort of attributes, and he's done this since the very beginning in the 1990s, as we'll see, he attributes bad things that are happening in the world, um, things that are negative things that are dangerous things that are violent almost anything bad he sort of pins on the government's persistent cover-up of alien contact in particular greer and and the disclosure movement more broadly focus on the good that would come of the advanced technology that has been sourced from alien craft that has been hidden that has been covered up what could this do for humanity if it were all made public There's deep flaws in American society, but Greer's work promotes the idea that American society will improve. Humanity's future actually depends on the people working for this UFO disclosure, fighting against the efforts of the alien cover-up cabal. There's a, a strong element of urging citizen engagement to make these changes happen. And he targets his various initiatives to different audiences, um, appealing to different groups, from those who are more conspiratorial-minded to those who might consider themselves part of the New Age sector, to even those who are more skeptical and materialistic. Um, To some, he will talk about consciousness. To some, he will talk mainly about technological things. So one of his earliest writings on the UFO situation was an essay in 1991 called One Universe, One People. And in this very brief article, Greer asserts the following. The firmest, most enduring, and transcendent foundation on which human unity is based, then, is consciousness itself. For we are all sentient beings, conscious, self-aware, and intelligent. No matter how diverse two people or two cultures may be, this foundation of consciousness will enable unity to prevail, as it is the simplest yet most profound common ground which all humans share. As great as the challenges to unity have been and continue to be for humans, 
How much greater might this be for the emerging and embryonic relationship between humans and extraterrestrial civilizations? The superficial and cultural differences between, say, an American and a Kenyan tribesman may pale before it. If disunity and conflict arise when we look only to the differences between humans, how much greater will the potential disunity and conflict be if we are only able to focus on the points of difference between humans and extraterrestrial beings? The failed and disastrous ways of the past, of seeing only differences in foreign qualities, must give way to a new way of seeing, of seeing with the eye of oneness. This eye of oneness must be directed not only toward our fellow humans, but toward extraterrestrial peoples as well. For the same fundamental basis for unity which exists among humans also exists for the relationship between humans and extraterrestrials. So this is very similar in some ways to some contactee ideas. The idea that not only is is humanity united in its fundamental nature, but that humanity and those from the stars, those from other planets, are also like us or like us enough that we can have some common ground. Greer doesn't go the route of literally saying that beings from other planets are are human uh, in a literal sense, but there's that very similar idea. So that essay came out in 1991, and in 1990, Greer had established C-SETI, and he described this as, quote, an international nonprofit scientific research and educational organization dedicated to the furtherance of our understanding of extraterrestrial intelligence. So, end quote. So this is, um, it's very sort of dressed up in academic terms, in sort of nonprofit foundation terms. It's, yeah, you, you'd read this and you'd think, oh, wow, this is very much like the actual SETI. And C-SETI had two goals. One was to establish what Greer called real-time diplomatic relations with extraterrestrials. And we have an episode about that in Dr. Richard Boylan's um, actually much more lurid sort of outrageous diplomatic efforts compared to almost anybody else. So diplomatic relations with extraterrestrials and the effort to, quote, develop bilateral and human-initiated contact with these, end quote, with them. So to accomplish this, CSETI, the organization, launches the CE5 initiative. So there are a lot of organizations and initiative names floating around here. So CSETI launches the CE5 initiative. Um, and that's to contact the aliens. The other goal is to, quote, educate all sectors of human society about this subject in a credible and non <laughs> Oh, I, I don't know why I laughed. In a credible and non-harmful manner, end quote. And that's the responsibility of the Project Starlight Coalition. So you've got the CE5 initiative to establish contact with the extraterrestrials on a, on a sort of civilian sort of citizen, engaged citizen level. And then you've got the Project Starlight Coalition, which is the educational arm of this. So you've got an umbrella organization, which has on the one hand an initiative, and on the other hand, a project, which is also a coalition. So it, it, it seems like the the organizational structure of this back in the early 1990s was almost created by opening up a dictionary of very sort of corporate or nonprofit uh, NGO style 
words and sort of throwing them around. Well, it's it's a it's it's a it's a it's a committee. It's a coalition. It's an initiative. It's a project. It's 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 strange. I like it. So in talking about the CE5 initiative uh, for close encounter of the fifth kind, Greer describes this as as seeking, quote, conscious, voluntary, and proactive human-initiated or cooperative contacts with ETI, or extraterrestrial intelligence, end quote. And, and he, he does describe the, the ETI as peaceful and benign. And he also, Greer also heads off the question, the perennial question, the honestly very good question, of why these peaceful visitors from the stars have not just already initiated contact with humanity. If, if they're willing to talk to us, and the CE5 initiative wouldn't make any sense if Greer thought they didn't want to talk to us, why haven't they? So Greer explains that the aliens, by not contacting us, overtly are operating in our best interest. ETI's enigmatic and elusive behavior may be understood as human protective when viewed from their perspective. A war-torn, aggressive, nuclear-armed, and disunified Earth civilization must not receive further potentially harmful technologies until a lasting world peace and unity is achieved, and international human goals become peaceful, cooperative, and unified in nature. Such a transformation will then indicate a readiness for a fuller contact and exchange between humans and ETI. We must respect and accept ETI's control and wisdom in this regard. We may expect a certain limited nature to ETI contact so that the disruptive potential of such contact will be minimized. Certainly, a massive influx of ETI culture, technology, etc. would prove harmful to long-term human evolution if said influx was sudden or ill-timed. Though the exact limits of such contact are not known, we are probably destined to experience an expansion of these limits as human civilization evolves and grows in peace and unity, or at times of significant worldwide crisis. So Greer sees the CE5 initiative, the, the contacts that would emerge from this, as a step toward expanded connections between Earth civilizations and extraterrestrial civilizations. And the reason you need people like Greer to get Americans or, or world citizens um, in, a, in a greater sense excited and active and engaged in this is because of the ongoing UFO cover-up. If the government were seeking positive connections with the aliens, we wouldn't have to. But that's not the case. Later in, in his book, Unacknowledged, that came out in 2017, Greer claims that the the mythical sort of storied legendary 1954 meeting between President Eisenhower and the aliens at Andrew, or not Andrews Edwards Air Force Base as as the last time the government attempted to communicate peacefully with the aliens. Greer says if there were later communications they were quote most likely hijacked by the military industrial complex who did not want to disclose anything about UFOs and ETs to the public end quote. And just to sort of jump in with this, I really like his sort of claim, his just sort of use of the military industrial complex as though the vast array of of offices in the military portions of the defense establishment and the civilian portions of the defense establishment and the industrial sector that there's there's that it's one big monolithic thing. I think just you know, 
I don't know. No, it's it's not. This is a complex thing with lots of different people. You can't, you can't just say the military industrial complex. It's like saying the deep state. It's a, a well-worn catchphrase designed to elicit certain emotions. Is there a military industrial complex? Yeah, obviously. It, is there like a guy or woman who runs it and makes these decisions? And, and who do you work for? The military industrial complex. This is a list of our policies about the aliens. No, stop it. So in Greer's world, there's this military industrial complex cabal that had kept information away, not only from the public, but also after 1954, away from the president in preventing the presidents from knowing about these technologies, alien technologies that you know the cabal has control of that would have fixed things economically, environmentally, whatever, across Earth. The way Greer explains it, history took a wrong turn there in the 1950s as the military-industrial complex cabal takes over things and cuts the legitimate elected government of the United States out of the equation. Because of that, it's up to the people to repair this damage and to sort of steer humanity back onto the correct road. What the military-industrial complex could not do is stop civilians from initiating their own contact with the extraterrestrials. The ultimate disclosure is millions of people making open, peaceful contact and documenting it on social media. Civilians establishing contact, not the UN. Not the State Department of the United States or the foreign ministries of European or any other nations on Earth. And most definitely not the secret government, a cabal dominated by the military-industrial complex that has been profiting off secrecy since 1947. So the way these CE5 protocols, he called them, would work was that uh, he believed there was a, you know, as we heard in his earliest essay, there's a shared consciousness underlying all living beings. And he said there would be, quote, group access to non-local consciousness followed by remotely viewing ET craft or persons which may be passing by at great distance or which may be nearby and you just can't see them because they have, quote, phase shifted beyond the visible spectrum of human sights. So a combination of, of sort of, I don't want to be, okay, this is a little sarcastic, wishing really hard that the ETs would show up and projecting those thoughts on a wavelength that all living beings share and then Sort of, he just sort of throws remote viewing in there. We're going to have to do a, a whole deep dive on remote viewing at some point, but it's not really a flying saucer thing. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe, maybe I'll do something. So he says the ETs would just literally quote pop in above the groups who were doing this. Okay, maybe. Um, then why not make them show up where we can all see them and call the news? I don't know. I'm, I'm being sort of snarky about it, but come on. If you can just summon them, oh, wait, they won't do that for our own good, right? They only show up to people who, yeah, okay. So along with the CE5 initiative, there is this Project Starlight Coalition, and that starts up in 1993 to educate and basically propagandize UFO disclosure to humanity. And Greer had four phases for this. The first phase would be to collect what Greer calls evidence and testimony from government, military, and intelligence witnesses who know about UFOs. So basically find government whistleblowers about the UFO or alien intelligence subject. 
At the same time this is going on, they would begin the process of briefing senior world leaders. So this is kind of typical in disclosure narratives. The Starlight Project is positioning people of high official status as being sort of a gold standard of witness or whistleblower. Their goal is not just to prove that aliens are coming to Earth, although because that question is is already settled. So we don't really need, really need to prove it. It's just kind of obvious. We just need to prove the existence of a cover-up and to end that cover-up. It's sort of a fait accompli that once people hear important figures in the government and military saying aliens are here, that they will automatically accept and believe it. And this briefing world leaders, on, on first glance, you might sort of think, well, if the governments are the ones covering it up, why would briefing government leaders need to be something that needs to be done? But another sort of disclosure trope, and, and really UFO conspiracy trope, is, is that the, the elected officials, the world leaders, they know nothing. They're all in the dark. They're, you know, the, the top secret government, the deep state, the cabal, whatever you want to call it, whatever military industrial complex, whatever euphemism is being used any given year. They're the ones who are controlling this entire narrative. So once Project Starlight collected enough witnesses, testimony, things like that, they would expand the briefing process to not just the tippy-top world leaders and a sort of informal, hey, don't tell anybody I told you, but they've been lying to you about the aliens. They got it all, I don't know, in a vault somewhere. Once you've got the evidence and the testimony, you start the full, more open process of briefing the entire sort of elected official class in various uh, various societies and also scientific leaders, cultural leaders, religious leaders, organizations like that. We're not to the general public yet. We start with the tippy top world leaders. We expand it to sort of the movers and shakers and in all sorts of fields. And I, I guess the assumption is that none of these people would talk to the public and that none of this would, uh, none of this would, would leak, but I don't know. That seems that seems unlikely. The public, like I said, the public won't be informed until the tippy top people, the world leaders are fully informed. And that education of the public is phase three of the process, where the entire UFO disclosure is covered by the global media. All the best evidence, all the most stunning witnesses will be presented publicly. You won't be able to deny the aliens are here. And then, Greer explains, I guess this is phase four, humanity would enter what he called the post-announcement era, and then Project Starlight would provide a continued education program. To ensure a calm, orderly, and ultimately constructive assimilation of the knowledge that we are not alone in the universe, and to empower the world community to assume open responsibility for management of the subject, thus ending current exclusive covert control. So in the 1990s, where were we with these phases? Well, throughout the decade, Greer often related accounts of his efforts to brief high-level officials and publicly released copies of, in quotes, briefings he prepared for a whole bunch of different people, including President Bill Clinton. Um, so he prepares these briefings and says, I've got this briefing for the president. And then he sort of spins that as you know whether or not the president read it uh, or anybody read it or even knows about it at various levels. He, he's like, well, I briefed the president. Well, look, I mean, 
if that's all it takes, I could brief the president too. I just you know mail my manifesto to the White House and well, I've briefed the president on my ideas. There's there's more specific claims of briefings to come. Don't worry. Uh, Greer claimed that members of the uh, anti-disclosure cabal threatened him at a UFO convention in Atlanta back in 1992. He's confronted, he says, by agents of the cabal, and and what he does is is he he explained the CE5 project to them, telling them he he was trying to develop ways to contact alien civilizations, quote, outside government channels because the government was broken. End quote. They weren't happy with his explanation of what he was up to. And so this is how Greer summarized this experience. They informed me that it was none of my business and not to do it. My response was, try stopping me. We had kind of a mano a mano in a hotel room until three in the morning. Oh, what a tough guy. And we had a kind of mano a mano in a hotel room until three in the morning. It doesn't sound like he probably intended it to sound um i mean good for them but just phrasing but clearly greer is on the right track if you know the cabal is trying to stop him soon he comes into contact with what he calls a trusted emissary of a senior cia official who told greer you know keep doing what you're doing because the government's not going to be able to get this done the government can't contact the aliens like Greer and the CE5 project could. And it's, it's, it's flattery. And, and this, this flattery positions Greer as sort of this, this vital and necessary savior of humanity. Dr. Greer, do what you're planning on doing and don't give up. Someone's got to do this because it's completely out of control. Moreover, someone's going to have to spearhead a contact protocol. Right now, the system is completely dysfunctional. Shockingly, secret government people are coming up to Greer and telling him the same things Greer has been telling his, I'll say followers, for years. Wow, what are the odds? It's confirmation of what Greer has been saying. Okay, so in 1993, Bill Clinton um, becomes president, and uh, in the Justice Department, you had a guy named Webb Hubble, who was a buddy of Clinton, and... um, Friends of Webb Hubble tell Greer that Clinton was hoping to figure out the truth about the UFOs while in office. And I think I think Clinton made some jokey comments like this at various times during the campaign. And there there in 1993, when when being president you know, was still fun before you actually start being president. Right. So Greer was also approached by what he called, quote, military people in favor of disclosure end quote. And Greer has these new contacts and they begin to develop ideas for how to brief senior officials. We're in, we're in phase sort of two and a half or one and a half here. If this sounds like an unlikely plan that, well, we're going to, we're going to brief these guys. That's because Greer was still in 1993, a, a wide eyed innocent in the land of politics. And he was by his own admission, unaware of how things actually worked. This was back in 1992-93, when I actually thought we had a functional constitutional government. Since then, I've learned it's all window dressing, that there's a parallel governmental process that operates completely independent of the people we elect. So this, written later in in Greer's, uh, Greer's, Greer's 2017 book, highlights his growing acceptance 
of and, and sort of awareness of the the standard secret government conspiracy theory that that drives not just the disclosure movement but a lot of a lot of UFO thought. The public government is not the only government. It may not even be the real government. And the only way the secret government, the only way you can beat it, is for those within the government with direct knowledge of the extraterrestrial cover up to break their silence, testify to the truth. And the government is not functional enough to allow this to happen. And so you need civilian groups or, or sort of private groups like CSETI and Project Starlight to, to step into that breach and facilitate disclosure. But at the same time, we have to acknowledge that Greer was, was meeting with a number of people who you, you have to you know, consider influential, including Lawrence Rockefeller. Just because he's a Rockefeller, he's, he's sort of prominent. The Rockefeller family is, is politically prominent. Uh, John Peterson who was a friend of James Woolsey, who was the CIA director at the time. And Greer would meet with Woolsey on December 13th, 1993, but not at CIA headquarters. Rather, what Greer would persist in calling a briefing would come during a dinner party at John Peterson's home with Greer, Woolsey, and their wives. Greer was worried he was being set up, but he and his wife go to the dinner anyway, because Greer is a brave, brave, tough guy who beats up cabal members in hotel rooms at three in the morning and goes to dinner. So at the end of the evening, Greer hands Wolsey a white paper he had written. And this was the response. Wolsey looked at me and said, how can we disclose something which we have no access to? That was a very chilling question. If we were to push on this, it would unveil the biggest constitutional crisis in the history of the United States. Now, that's what I call a cliffhanger. We'll be back in a week, fielding any questions and comments you have about this early era in the discussion movement. So be sure to get those to us in the comments under this episode on the website or on social media or through email. Then in the next regular episode, it's an extremely classic UFO case that we haven't yet looked at here on The Saucer Life, the Leveland, Texas sightings. Some timely announcements, if you're listening to this soon after release first, I'll be giving one of the presentations at this year's Strange Realities Conference, which will be held in person in Nashville and online everywhere you can get the internet without, you know, restrictions or whatever. Um, I assume there are probably some countries where you can't get it, but it's going to be October 15th through 17th. You can check it out at strangerealitiesconference.com. Last year's online conference was spectacular. This year, they've got another massive lineup of guests, including me and including uh, various friends of the show. Uh, Tim Banal is going to be there. So that's worth your money right there. Also, we here at Chizo Media have launched a second podcast. And the first episode of Great Lakes Lore appeared this week. And on this show, I joined Samantha Engel, who you've heard here on The Saucer Live from time to time. And we explore historical mysteries and weirdness, including paranormal weirdness, in the region comprising and surrounding the Great Lakes. Uh, And we do that from our particular perspectives as professional historians. Even if you don't live in the area, we think you'll find it fun and interesting because a lot of the things we talk about on the show, you know, have, you know, parallels or, or corresponding incidents in other parts of the country or world. You can check it out at greatlakeslore.com or anywhere you find podcasts. And you can check out past episodes of The Saucer Life at saucerlife.com. 
thanks for all your support over the years, listening to the show, commenting, contributing. Uh, we value it very much. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Saucer Life, on Facebook at, I think, The Saucer Life Podcast. If you look for that on Facebook, that'll pop up. And you can email us at thesaucerlife at gmail.com. You can contact us by post with Christmas cake or your testimony about your life working in an underground base or something at Chizo Media, P.O. Box 68, Grand Blanc, Michigan, 48480. Now, let's get back to Dr. Greer. Now, Greer would often cite this December 1993 dinner party or briefing with Wolsey as one of the key pieces of evidence, not only that there was an extraterrestrial cover-up, but that even the CIA director was unable to get to the truth. This narrative came under some scrutiny in 1999 when Wolsey and Peterson sent Greer a letter expressing concern and dismay that he had published his account of the 1993 dinner party without giving the others present, quote, the opportunity to comment. Well, they took the opportunity to comment. You portrayed this dinner party conversation during which the four of us listened to your views and politely asked questions as a briefing with a cover story. You further assert that Mr. and Mrs. Wolsey reported a UFO sighting to you and agreed with your views. You include specific alleged quotations from them. None of this is accurate. You have portrayed politeness as acquiescence and questions as affirmations. Your conduct in this matter contravenes both accuracy and simple manners. I love the idea of some dinner party and, you know, John Peterson says, Hey, hey, Wolsey, you'll you'll like this guy. He's a smart guy. He talks about interesting, interesting stuff. And Wolsey's like, okay, whatever. And, you know, they're sitting there and Greer's going on about aliens and and they're like, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. Interesting. Well, okay. These dinner rolls are, are, okay. More aliens. Okay. Keep, keep talking. And I can imagine Wolsey just like thinking, you know, what forms do I have to fill out to have Peterson assassinated for bringing this clown to my house for dinner or whatever? It's, I just, it's just funny to me anyway. So this letter becomes widely known in the UFO community and Greer has to kind of take control back of this narrative and, and make sure people do realize and believe that he was the confidant of the powerful and the well-connected. Greer says, quote, Mr. Wolsey et al. have a very selective memory of this nearly three-hour briefing of a sitting CIA director. Yeah, briefings of CIA. Okay, I'll I'll keep going with what Greer said. I got excited. Let me start over. Mr. Wolsey et al. have a very selective memory of this nearly three-hour briefing of a sitting CIA director. If anything, my description of the meeting is incredibly understated. End quote. I briefed a sitting CIA director over dinner with our wives and and his friend was there and and, and his wife was there. It was a briefing, darn it. It was not dinner. Greer goes on to explain that Peterson, who was working with Greer at the time, himself characterized the dinner as a briefing. And in response to the accusation that Greer's claims contravened simple manners, Greer pointed out that he had kept quiet about the dinner with Woolsey for several years, despite many opportunities to publicize this information during his many, many, many TV and radio appearances. Instead, Greer waited 
politely until Wolsey was no longer the CIA director. And Greer ends this statement with just this, this volley of self-righteous indignation. Good manners, as it pertains to this subject, means speaking the truth and being willing to stand up for it. Good manners would be public servants such as Woolsey and others doing the right thing and working ardently for the truth to be told regarding UFOs and ETI. Good manners should mean more concern for the health of our democracy and the Constitution than covering up the import and purpose of such a briefing. And good manners would be joining in the effort to disclose a matter which, once made public, would allow earth-saving technologies to be revealed, which would halt the wholesale destruction of our ecosystem. The current attempt to minimize, obfuscate, or cover up the purpose and details of this briefing with the CIA director is quite disconcerting and strange. But now, perhaps the time has come for we the people to demand that current and former officials such as CIA Director Woolsey and the President be held responsible for the lack of action on resolving this most pressing problem. After all, we pay their salaries, provide their perks, and they represent us. It is not I who needs defense. My actions over these long years have spoken my commitment. But we still await action from our elected and appointed officials. As the earth groans under the weight of the erosive and corrupting influence of big money and special interests, I wonder just how much longer we will have to wait. I think it is time that the American people demand that the waiting time be over. Settle down, Steve. Whatever happened at this meeting, Greer would continue his attempts to brief government officials and and work for alien disclosure. And to do that, he needs witnesses, right? But witnesses have often signed confidentiality agreements or have security oaths or other things that might legally prevent them from talking about things that they oughtn't. So Greer develops a legal notion that any national security oath which prevents people from disclosing what they know about the aliens is, in fact, unlawful because they were foisted upon these people by a secret government which is illegitimate. So the government entities that are keeping the alien thing secret are the ones who demanded the security oaths and the classifications and the clearance because that element of the government, Greer argues, is illegitimate, illegal, secret, unlawful, unconstitutional. There can actually be no real consequences, legal consequences for people who violate that security oath if it's about alien stuff. I do not think this would hold up in court, but Greer attempts to legitimize this, and this is this is outstanding. If you're familiar with sovereign citizen legal tactics, you'll, you'll recognize some of the elements here. Greer sends a letter to President Clinton and Vice President Gore in November 1996 and, and some other national security leaders. The letter is headed, Planned Disclosure on the UFO, Extraterrestrial Subject, and National Security Oaths. They say, we've identified a bunch of witnesses, and their statements are attached, and they're going to provide open public testimony on the matter. He's not asking Clinton for permission, but he's requesting, quote, a clear determination regarding their freedom to speak openly on this subject. So we want to know whether or not the government believes they can speak freely on this subject without getting in trouble. And Greer gives Clinton a deadline and says, we're going to move forward on January 1st, 1997, unless Clinton informs Greer that these people are still bound to silence. 
So basically, what Greer is attempting to do is engineer a situation where if anybody does reveal anything that legally they're not supposed to and they are prosecuted or sanctioned for it in some way, Greer will say, but we have the president's blessing on this because he did not respond to the letter about our UFO disclosure that we sent him. We gave him a deadline. If you don't say anything, I'll know it's okay. That's not really how things work in courts of law. Well, if this isn't really against the law, just don't say anything and I'll know it's it's okay. Uh, Clinton did not respond. Uh, so Project Starlight evolved and began to develop and began to be something that would, would actually make a pretty big splash. Beginning in 1997, Greer and other members of his group of witnesses are meeting with members of Congress, presenting their information. Nothing comes of this. So between 97 and 2001, Greer filmed and compiled all the witness and whistleblower testimony and compiled it for sale, getting it out to the public that way. This would eventually become known as or result in something called the Disclosure Project, which kicked off on May 9th, 2001, in an event at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C. And this was the public revelation, uh, without paying for it, of testimony from Greer's witnesses and whistleblowers. And in addition to the live event, there was a written brief and an executive summary of the project and the evidence that the witnesses presented that um, appeared earlier in April of 2001. And Greer talked about the implications of the disclosure, framed it in terms of implications for, quote, the environment, world peace, world poverty, and the human future. He asserts that those who think the question of life in the universe is conjecture or an academic question are, quote, wrong, catastrophically wrong. He describes exactly what his whistleblowers would disclose. They would reveal that humanity was being visited by advanced alien civilizations, that crashed spacecraft have been retrieved and studied since at least the 40s and possibly the 30s. And this has led to technological breakthroughs in energy and propulsion. Physics has been rewritten. We do not need fossil fuels to burn anymore. And these advances, if released to the public, will empower, quote, a new human civilization without want, poverty, or environmental damage. And he spends more time on these benefits before getting to the actual witness testimony. He asserts that the project's insiders know the means and methods to replace all forms of currently used energy creation and transportation systems. We're going to have anti-gravity. We're going to have free energy. And this will have benefits beyond, you know, the damage caused by drilling and mining and things. Benefits to agriculture, reduced pressure on water supplies, reduction in noise pollution, he says, and the elimination of the geopolitical tensions arising from competition for fossil fuel resources. And with regard to the environment, he explains that these benefits can't happen soon enough. Current human civilization has reached the point of being able to commit planetside, the killing of an entire world. We can and we must do better. These technologies exist, and every single person who is concerned about the environment and the human future should call for urgent hearings to allow these technologies to be disclosed, declassified, and safely applied. So this always sort of 
felt to me like an attempt to broaden the appeal of the UFO disclosure movement. If you're not excited about aliens, if, if you're not excited about government cover-ups or have any sort of cares about that, maybe you'll be concerned about the environment. Maybe you'll be concerned about the planet. And he's taking a similar approach to discussing the impact disclosure will have on society and world poverty. This new technology, this alien technology, could level the playing field between different nations. These technologies, because they will decentralize power literally and figuratively, will enable the billions living in misery and poverty to enter a world of new abundance. And with economic and technological development, education will rise and birth rates will fall. It is well known that as societies become more educated, prosperous, and technologically advanced, and women take an increasingly equal role in society, the birth rate falls and population stabilizes. This is a good thing for world civilization and the future of humanity. So here, this, this, is, this is something that, that, I, that, that always sort of strikes me. Greer argues that poverty is, is sort of just merely the result of access or lack of access to resources. That poverty is chiefly, if not entirely, the result of scarcity and, and poor or flawed resource allocation. His view of, of poverty's causes and solutions is not a nuanced one. There's no discussion of the structural causes of poverty and the differences in causes of poverty in different parts of the world. Greer presents alien technology adapted for human use as sort of a, 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 a panacea with little recognition of underlying political issues. He does, however, realize that there is a potential for conflict and it will be the role of the United States to, quote, lead through strength without becoming domineering because we've always pulled that off before, right? In general, Greer argues that war and peace and security and these issues can also be solved by the governments of the world openly embracing all of these new technologies. The real threat of war over a shrinking supply of fossil fuels in the next 10 to 20 years further underscores the need for this disclosure. What happens when the 4 billion people living in poverty want cars, electricity, and other modern conveniences, all of which depend on fossil fuels? To any thinking person, it is obvious that we must transition quickly to the use of these now classified technologies. They are powerful solutions already sitting on a shelf. Do the poor people of the world currently not want cars and electricity? Is he aware that many poor people have cars and electricity in different parts of the world? I don't know. It's weird. It's weird the way he phrases these things. And like his discussion of poverty, Greer presents the perfectibility of the human condition through alien technology as, as just sort of a given. You reveal the technology and whatever problems we have will be solved almost immediately. It's a golden age. We don't have it yet because of this deeply embedded secrecy and suppression that's kept this information hidden, not only from the general public, but from elected leaders of the nations of the world. So he talks about these benefits in this disclosure project briefing, and then he delves into his history of UFO secrecy and, and, and the cover up and all of those things. And he does something that happens a lot in the disclosure sort of field and even back in the contactee field there are good guys and bad guys in this story the good guys are always the ufo buffs and the aliens the bad guys are never the extraterrestrials or the aliens presenting an enemy that is wholly human the, the forces in this case hiding the truth of alien life it allows you to keep the focus on terrestrial earthly political social environmental issues and things like that. You don't start 
you don't sound like you're being crazy and talking about the evil aliens who are putting implants in you. You're talking about, you know what the real issue here is? The real issue is pollution and war for oil. That's the real issue. And I've got a solution. And you sort of, you don't sound as outlandish. Now he acknowledges that this is going to be a big deal. This is going to be a scary thing, but he urges those who are hiding the truth to come forward for the good of humanity. To continue the secrecy and the suppression of these new energy and propulsion technologies means something far more destabilizing, the collapse of the Earth's ecosystem and the certain depletion of the fossil fuels on which we depend, and the growing anger of the have-nots who are needlessly being deprived of a full and dignified life. There are no more generations to which we can pass this cosmic hot potato. We must deal with it and do what we should have done in 1950. So why hasn't anything been done yet? It's not just that those in charge want the aliens to remain a secret. It's because the secrecy itself has become a massive issue. Greer says, quote, the complexity of the compartmentalized projects, the degree of unconstitutional and unauthorized activity, the privatization or theft by corporate partners of advanced technologies, the continued lying to elected and appointed leaders, all of these and more have contributed to a psychology of continued secrecy because disclosure would expose the greatest scandal in recorded history, end quote. Here's the thing. You take the aliens out of this and these concerns he just listed secrecy, complexity, corruption, misleading of elected officials. These are not crazy things to be concerned about. It's just, I'm not sure aliens are the biggest part of this problem. So the disclosure project to, to sort of prove this presented dozens of witnesses And their testimony was presented in the executive summary and at the National Press Club event. And many of the witnesses are are not named, but described by their, in in the written part anyway, are described by their positions or occupations. Um, A senior air traffic controller, former head of the British Ministry of Defense, National Reconnaissance Office, Office operative. In some cases, they don't even have a position name. This is just somebody from the New York Air National Guard. So... In this way, what Greer does is sort of find a way to base their credibility as much on the institutions with which they were affiliated as well as the actual content of their testimony. And some of the the witness statements were pretty vague uh, in the executive summary. Here's one from Dr. B. I know that some people I worked with did disappear on certain programs and were never heard from again. They just disappeared. There's been evidence of that all through my work, you know, that that people go out on projects and disappear. But to protect myself from this, I wouldn't go any further on a project because I could see something strange coming. So a lot of people have disappeared, you know, that are higher up. We don't know from this what Dr. B did or what these programs were. In fact, he he does make a point to deny being in a position to know details about the projects, right? It's like, I didn't want to know too much about it. Much more specific is this statement from John Callahan, head of accidents and investigations for the FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration. This is one of the guys from the CIA, okay? That they were never there and this never happened. At the time I said, well, I don't know why you're saying this. 
I mean, there was something there. And if it's not a stealth bomber, then, you know, it's a UFO. And if it's a UFO, why wouldn't you want the people to know? Oh, they got all excited over that. You don't even want to say those words. He said, this is the first time they've ever had 30 minutes of radar data on a UFO. And they're all itching to get their hands onto the data and to find out what it is and what really goes on. He says that they come out and told the American people that they ran into a UFO out there, it would cause panic across the country. So therefore, you can't talk about it. And they're going to take all this data. When the CIA told us that this never happened and, and we never had this meeting, I believe it was because they didn't want the public to know what was going on. Normally, we would put out some type of a news release that such and such happened. A lot of the testimony was like that. Um, government intimidation of UFO witnesses and those who'd experienced alleged contacts with alien intelligence craft or even just reporting sightings. And some witnesses, like Donna Hare, who we'll actually hear from, from the footage from the National Press Club event, spoke to the culture of institutional secrecy within government organizations surrounding the subject of UFOs, alien intelligence, things like that. Donna Hare is described in the executive summary as a NASA employee, and that is how she is described or listed with the caption on the screen. In her actual statement, she goes into a little more detail about the fact that she was not a NASA employee. She was employed by another company that contracted to NASA, which is not the same thing. But here's Donna Hare. Uh, good morning, everyone. My name is Donna Hare, and I worked at Philco Ford Aerospace for, from 1967 to 1981. During that time, I was a design illustrator, draftsman. Uh, I did the launch slides and landing slides, and also projecting plotting boards, lunar maps for NASA. We were a contractor, but it, most of the time I worked on site, excuse me, in Building 8. I had the opportunity to do extra work during downtime, which was between missions, and I walked into a photo lab, which was the NASA lab, across the hallway. I had a secret clearance, which is not that high, but I was able to go into restricted areas, which this was. Uh, at the time, I was talking to one of the techs in there, and he drew my attention to a photograph, that, a NASA photograph. It had a dot on it, and I said, what is that? Well, he drew my attention to it, and, and I said, is that a, a dot on the emulsion? And he said, and he's smiling, and he has his hands crossed, and he said, uh, round dots on the emulsion don't leave round shadows on the ground. And this was an aerial photograph of the Earth, I'm assuming the Earth, because it had pine trees on it, and the shadows of the craft, or whatever it was, were in the same angle as the trees. And by its very nature, UFO, and I wanted to clarify that to a gentleman that was talking to me, means unidentified, so I did not know what this was. But I realized at this point that it's very secret, that it was kept secret, because I asked him, what are you going to do with this piece of information? And he said, we always airbrush these out before we sell them to the public. So they're pesky little creatures uh, appearing on this uh, photograph they wanted to get rid of. Uh, after that, I decided I would ask questions to other people that worked there. And I found that I had to ask them away from the site and not on site. A guard told me that he was asked to burn some photographs and not to look at them. And there was a guard, another guard guarding him, who was in green fatigues, 
watching him burn the photographs. And he said he was too tempted. He looked at one, and it was a picture of a UFO. And he was very descriptive. I can go into that later with anyone. Uh, he immediately was hit in the head, and he had a big gash in his forehead. He was knocked out, and he's terrified. So he would have to be protected. Uh, another incident, I knew someone in quarantine with the Apollo astronauts. He told me that the Apollo astronauts saw craft on the moon when we landed. And that is what he told me. And he also was afraid, he said, that the astronauts are told to keep this quiet. They're not allowed to talk about it. So I do want to let you know that I worked out there for a number of years, and this I ran into this. So it's not something everyone knows that works out there for a long time. My boss didn't know about it. Uh, some people that sat right next to me didn't know about it. It's, it's very strange because I don't know how they can do it, but they can let some people know about it and then others not. I'm willing to testify before Congress that what I'm saying is true, and uh, thank you very much. Thank these witnesses at the National Press Club event often concluded their their statements by by affirming they were willing to testify under oath in front of Congress, which is easy to do when there's a really good chance Congress is never going to put you under oath to testify about this sort of thing. So later that year in 2001, sort of, yes, it's it's not quite the 90s, but stay with me. After the September 11th terrorist attacks, Greer, yeah, Greer took advantage of this tragedy to talk about the Disclosure Project and why it was more important than ever. The valid, true, legal government of we the people is deprived of both technologies and funding that could have prevented the massive national security and intelligence failure that led to the events of 9-11. Largely privatized, these operations have both the means and the technologies to have prevented 9-11, and yet... They did nothing. Yeah. So it's been 20 years since Greer launched his National Press Club briefing there in May of 2001. There has been there's been movement in the disclosure field, but I think you could argue it's been circular movement, cycles of new whistleblowers, new officials, new people who claim to have been working on things that they may or may not have been working on, new sightings, new evidence, and always the promise that this time we're turning the corner. This time, everybody's going to know. This time, the government is going to speak up and disclose everything they know. I'm still waiting. And I think even if it happens, and in some cases you could argue that, you know, it has been disclosed several times that the government, various elements of the government do take the issue of strange things in the sky seriously. I mean, it's logical that they do. They're strange things in the sky, in our airspace, over our country. They should take it seriously. But apart from some stories and some 60-minute segments and, and some things like that, I haven't noticed the world changing. That doesn't mean it won't ever change. It just means it hasn't yet. And maybe don't hold your breath. Thanks for listening. Remember to send in your questions and comments via the usual social media or email channels, and we'll address them on our episode next week. Our associate producer is Simpson J. Hanover III, and The Saucer Life is a production of Chizo Media. Chizo Media. Our heart is with the people. Till next time, keep watching the skies, because the skies...
are watching you.